This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Citizen Radio, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, This American Life, The Rachel Maddow Show, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and The Bugle with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users, also from The Bugle. You all know we got some surprising news this week, but at the same time, we had been waiting for that news for about a decade. As it turns out, we had actually written some jokes in anticipation of this occasion (laughs) back in 2001, and we were hoping they still might work. Um, So as we start out the show, let me just try some out and you see how it goes. Here's one. Wow, the U.S. military is better at finding their man than Ali McBeal. All right, all right, all right. I got another one. The news was so good, I rewound my VHS cassette and watched it again. (laughs) Now, your first quote is the above the fold headline from the New York Times on Monday morning Another side of tilapia, the perfect factory fish. (laughs) That's right. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the headline. That they had ready to go (laughs) before they stopped the presses late Sunday night. It was ultimately replaced by a headline announcing what? The death of Osama bin Laden. Exactly right. Very good. Let me give that a round of applause. So this week we found out that bin Laden has spent the last six years living in a compound in an upscale Pakistani town called Abbottabad. Neighbors said the residents of the house there were nice enough, although every Halloween, the guy who lived there always dressed as Osama bin Laden. <laughs> except, except for last year when he was a Chilean miner like everybody else. <laughs> anyway, so President Obama, as we know, announced that uh, Navy SEALs had gone in and, and killed him. And, and he made this speech on Sunday night, and he said, quote, America can do whatever we set our mind to, unquote. And that's true. We can solve any problem as long as the solution involves Navy SEALs. <laughs> If you don't have health insurance, the SEALs will rappel down from helicopters and shoot your cold in the head. <laughs> but you know what? No one's really talking about, you know, that uh, Osama bin Laden's wife was there and she got shot in the leg. Now, that's the interview that I want to hear. Like, you know, like, girl, what happened? You know, like, <laughs> girl, what happened in there? Tell so me, they, like, yeah, I man. want that to be Oprah's last interview. Right. <laughs> But, like, I'm, like, so into the SEALs now. Everybody is. Oh, it's not just me? Yeah, apparently. It's not just women of a certain age? I don't think the SEALs... All, all, I don't, the, I, all the women in America are really into Navy SEALs, and all the guys in America are going, yeah, I'm a Navy SEAL. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think... Turns out there's 40 million of them. Call, Who knew? call yes. me a cougar, I'll call you a SEAL. And... and, and <laughs> <laughs> oh, cougar? Oh! And the SEALs are like... And all the seals in the bars are like, yeah, I know I'm 50 and overweight. I'm undercover. Yeah. <laughs> once, once we get home, this all comes off. I'll show you. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we're not leaving the story yet. Here's your next quote. It's about the aftermath. We don't need to spike the football. That was President Obama explaining why he was not going to release what? Um, the photos. Yes, the photos of Bin Laden's body, of course. <laughs> That's right. You got that right? The... Um, The frustrating thing about finally killing Osama bin Laden is that you can only do it once. So the media moved on to obsessing over whether or not the White House should release post-mortem photos. 
As you heard, the president decided that we Americans, quote, don't need to spike the football, which made everybody ask once again, was this guy born here? <laughs> of course we spike the football. We invented spiking the football. A real American president? Do the end zone dance. Yeah, exactly. No, he would release the photo by sponsoring a NASCAR driver and painting it on the car. <laughs> The, the media lost its mind this week. I mean, on Sunday night, they were waiting for the announcement, and Wolf Blitzer had to vamp for like 90 minutes as they delayed the announcement. And he knew the news, but he couldn't say it. It wasn't sourced correctly. So he was like, ooh, ooh, it's so exciting, I can't tell you. I'll give you a hint. It's in Laden Bay is Ed Day. <laughs> but then... You know, Rhymes with Obama. Once the news was finally confirmed, CNN's John King just kept looking into the camera and saying... Osama bin Laden is dead. Osama bin Laden is dead. <laughs> Unfortunately, he said it so many times, he activated an ancient curse and brought bin Laden back to life. We launched two wars to essentially pull off a police maneuver. Yeah, like, all right. Look, everybody. This is one of those big days. You're all listening to the show. You all listened to the show uh, yesterday after it was announced very late that Osama bin Laden was killed. Someone goes, so they announced it at like midnight and someone was like, are we going to get a special episode about this? And I was like, what the hell? What? No. We're going to bed. Where? <laughs> what the hell's the matter with you? What? You'll what? hear about this tomorrow. Can you wait for a fucking day? Can you turn on any other news channel? Yeah. Everybody's hot. I, but I think we'll like the- to his credit, he was like, I'm hearing all the propaganda. Right. And I want to hear what oh, you good. guys have to say I want to, to make sure he it. didn't just want a half an hour of us going, USA, <laughs> USA. Look, guys, Osama bin Laden's a bad guy. I get it. But holy fucking shit. Like, can we cut out this? Like, even liberals I respected and now don't follow on Twitter were like... The bloodthirsty. Yeah. Like, it was so fucking gross. And, and, and the whole thing is like, what are we bragging about? Like, yeah, that's right. You, uh, when, when America says we're going to do something in 11 years <laughs> after destroying two countries, bankrupting our own, killing over 4,000 American troops and a million Iraqis, we fucking do it because we're America. Yeah, like, I mean, what? there's been like a handful of rational responders like the usual suspects, Digby, Glenn Greenwald. I haven't read Greenwald. I haven't loaded up. Max Blumenthal, Chris Hedges. They all... And really articulate, much more articulate than, than we are going to be right now. Responses that I encourage everybody to, to check out. But essentially Digby was like, I get it. I really do get why people were furious about 9-11 and wanted justice. But this is revenge. It's not justice. And, and, uh, you know, the whole bloodthirsty reaction. It's like, I, and Digby was saying this as well, can't get excited that someone 
took two in the head and is dead and buried at sea. Right. Like, that doesn't bring anybody back. Would have been nice if he was uh, imprisoned. Well, that's what Greenwald said. He said, you know, he wished there had been a trial that we had, like, shown the the might of the Western justice system. Because guess what? He would have been found guilty because yeah. he's Osama bin Laden. And he said he did it. Yeah. And I mean, and Hedges, who's very educated about the region and has been following uh, the story since, you know, 2003 and won a Pulitzer Prize covering the Middle East and what was happening, said that Osama bin Laden was like Hitler was to the Third Reich, meaning Hitler, bad dude, probably the worst dude in the world. However, he was more of like a spiritual leader in -hmm. that he was a figurehead with no real power the people who were like running the concentration camps and you know doing the sweeps of the ghettos and executing uh you know jews and gypsies and gay people were the ones actually committing the violence and that's what's one of those things where when i was on my way to jujitsu today in my american flag jumpsuit i went to penn station that's the subway stop i take and there were fucking armed guards and camo and more dogs than i've ever seen and i was like yay we caught osama i'm in more danger exactly and that's what chris hedges talks about where it's like the the chances of blowback have now increased exponentially you know because now the even if though he was just a figurehead he was seen as the leader of al-qaeda so yeah does anyone seriously think that they're not going to retaliate for this hey guys how do you think they find a new leader rock paper scissors yeah. Scrabble. It's like a race to who commits the biggest act of violence against Western forces or Western civilians. Yeah, yeah. like I was talking to my friend today who's like, you know, an action movie guy and, and, and doesn't really follow politics. And he was like, well, it was kind of badass the way they did it. And I was like, I guess. Oh, no, he goes... He goes, I wouldn't want to be the second in command. And I'm like, yeah, but do you really think the second in command is going to be like, oh, that was really scary. Hey, guys, can we open up that bakery we've been talking about? Yeah, exactly. They're going to, they're going to fuck, they're going to try to fuck shit up. There's no backup plan when you're at war with the West. Also, it's Al Qaeda. Yeah. They're not really rational people. Exactly. You're, you're dealing with terrorists and terrorists of any ilk, whether we're, we're talking about Al Qaeda or, you know, whoever are, they use violence to make a political statement. Now, but with that said, they now, would have anyway. What Chris Hedges was saying was, we lost at the inception of this war because we engaged in the language of violence. Right. You know, we're committing atrocious acts of violence far more destructive than Al-Qaeda could ever dream of committing. Yeah, and, and that's what I was going to say, is for anyone who was sort of chanting USA last night or, you know, like Dangles was doing, doing barrel rolls, pretending to be a sniper with a little plastic gun. Uh, He's so cute when he does it. You can't get mad at him. It's cute, but the shit he says is atrocious. Oh, racist against races that aren't involved. Or actually exist. He's just making up races. The the albina blacks, you mean? What the hell is that? I guess they're really pale black people. Oh, God. But like, you, like, I know... (laughs) Again. Side note, I think albino blacks actually exist. They might. Yeah. Look, we fucking improvise the show, okay? I know. Sometimes stuff just slips out. Gems can... And we can't edit everything. All right? Stop writing us. God. (laughs) Dangles with his fake races like Latinos. Oh, no. (laughs) They're they're real, What have I done? Asians. Ah. (laughs) Um, They, you know... After the Twin Towers were hit, when you did have some... uh, I mean, pretty much everyone was on our side. Except for some monsters. And 
But the monsters were out in the street burning American flags, and they were like, yeah, fuck you. And it's like, uh, we kind of did that last night a little bit. And everyone was really excited about it. Like, look at everyone in the streets cheering the death of somebody. And it's like, I know that it was obviously better that we killed Osama bin Laden as opposed to all the civilians that they killed on uh, on September 11th. But look at how many we've civilians we've killed in the in, in the 11 years, right? In the 11 year buildup to catching Osama bin Laden. And the last thing I want to say about this, or the, the last thing I have kind of prepared to say, and and this is harsh and may bother some people even who listen to this show uh he won like what did he osama bin laden said his goal right he knew he wasn't going to be able to invade america but he said his goal was to bankrupt america and he did it and he fucking did it yeah not only that this opens up a huge hornet's nest because now we know pakistan high-ranking military officials knew where osama bin laden was he was staying in a complex that was like in it very close to a military academy he was in like really? an upper scale neighborhood every the officials in pakistan knew where osama bin laden so when was. everyone was like he's in a cave somewhere he was obviously not in a cave he was in a very do you think he had direct tv uh well they were showing the inside of the i mean the house is torn to shit now but he had a bed and he had a clothing cabinet and do a you nice think he view. liked the voice more than american idol because if he did, because uh, I do, a little he's a bit. terrorist. He's not stupid. So he Jamie. probably likes American Idol more. No, I'm saying he likes the voice. He's a terrorist. Even though he's a terrorist, he's not stupid. All right, that's true. Okay. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out, and if you want to be free, be free. Cause there's a million things to be, you know that there are. And if you want to live high, live high. And if you want to live low, live low Cause there's a million ways to go You know that there are You can do what you want The opportunity's on And if you find a new way You can do it today I don't even know where to start with this. I ended up, I, I got home at about, I think, 11 yesterday. And I just, for a second, just turned on the TV and saw every channel was talking about Obama has been, or, or rather, I'm doing it already, Osama. Obama has announced that he has killed, not personally, Osama bin Laden. And at that point, I don't know, I ended up getting wrapped up uh, watching the news and then the speech. And, I mean, it was like 1 a.m. before I finally... Uh, you know, wrap things up. And there was really not that much to see. I mean, in other words, there were people in D.C. and in Times Square, and there was something. We'll talk about what this means, good and bad. We'll talk to Bill Sher and Matt Lewis also. But there was something that to me was a little bit of a turnoff in rejoicing the way that you would if a team wins a, a big soccer game about somebody dying, even though, uh, as, as many have said, we can, I think it was Mark Twain who said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't wish death on anyone, but there are certain obituaries that I take pleasure in reading. And what was your thought when you heard about this? Um, I think there's going to be a lot of very angry people. So you're worried about some kind of retaliatory action from Al-Qaeda. I mean, the thing is, I, I did think that, but at the same time, were they not trying to get us, so to speak, the entire time anyway, anyway? Yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know that that's... I, 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 I mean, that. I'm happy in general. You're happy about the death of bin Laden? Yeah. 
In other words, you believe that he, he deserved to be captured or killed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Here's the Barack Obama statement, just a little bit of it, explaining exactly what happened. All right, hold on, Lewis, let's talk for a second while I get everything wired up here, because, you know, we're having all sorts of problems. Yeah, see, this is what happened when David does not prepare properly for the show. All, all right, right. Here, here's the clip. I know we do have it. We reaffirmed our ties to each other and our love of community and country. On that day, no matter where we came from, what God we prayed to, or what race or ethnicity we were, we were united as one American family. We were also united in our resolve to protect our nation and to bring, to bring those who committed this vicious attack to justice. We quickly learned that the 9-11 attacks were carried out by Al-Qaeda, an organization headed by Osama bin Laden, which had openly declared war on the United States and was committed to killing innocents in our country and around the globe. And so we went to war against Al-Qaeda to protect our citizens, our friends, and our allies. All right, so he went a little bit into the backstory. He also talked about the uh, specifics of exactly what happened and how this, came to, this operation came to take place. After years of painstaking work by our intelligence community, I was briefed on a possible lead to bin Laden. It was far from certain, and it took many months to run this thread to ground. I met repeatedly with my national security team as we developed more information about the possibility that we had located bin Laden hiding within a compound deep inside Pakistan. And finally, last week, I determined that we had enough intelligence to take action and authorized an operation to get Osama bin Laden and bring him to justice. All right, so he goes on with a few more specifics. And one of the reactions immediately that we saw from, uh, from Republicans was, hold on a second, he didn't even mention George W. Bush in this whole thing. Because, hey, if George W. Bush hadn't started this endless war in Afghanistan, we arguably never would have caught Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. So I think maybe there is certainly some resentment there among Republicans saying, hey, what about George? What about George W. Bush? Definitely, yeah. And uh, so the questions that instantly come up are, what do we gain as a result of this? In other words, what changes? Does this change the war on terror? I don't think it does. Not at all. Does this change the fact that we will still go forward in thinking of TSA porno scanners and secret operations around the world and all of these other things that are happening. Will that change because Osama bin Laden, who was, as we understand it, on dialysis and in, an, in, a, in a practical nature, not able to really do that much for the last 10 years anyway, eight years, seven years. I don't think it really changes anything on that front. Now, it does make people happy. It will help politically Barack Obama for sure. Some people are saying, hey, Obama's a shoo-in for 2012 as a result of this. I don't think so. We'll see what Matt Lewis and Bill Scher think about that in a few minutes. Um, I, I get all of the ways that this is a positive thing, but I don't actually think that in reality it changes anything in terms of operating politically or economically.
Alex Jass, 85. Sam, despite knowing people lost in the attacks, I just feel a sense of unease at the recent bizarre events. It seems perverse to have misplaced death for justice. It seems perverse to celebrate the extrajudicial assassination of people the government deems unsavory. It seems perverse, at least to me, to celebrate more death as closure for the death of many others. But that might be colored by my own sense of the injustice of the death penalty. I caught this tweet last night, and it really spoke to me. Two things that cost the U.S. over a decade and $100 billion to do. Get a man on the moon and kill Osama bin Laden. Obama's tone of accomplishment last night's speech at the death of a person, despite who that person is, along with the previous tweet, more truly to me about the trajectory of our society. The people who celebrated in front of the White House last night, as Jeremy Scahill said on Democracy Now! Today, are morons. I just hope that we can see this death as a reason to end our wars. Perhaps the death of Hitler was seen, but I doubt that will happen. Justice does not mean eye for an eye in our society anymore. We have a process, and we can't keep perpetuating a system of bigger uh, uh, fish is allowed to kill littler fish based upon the implicit authority over morality based upon the state, our state, over the authority of extra state actors. I, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. In fact, I don't think I could have said it better. I certainly I, I tried, but I think that's absolutely right. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, it is a shame that we as a country don't have the capacity to deal with this guy alive. It speaks to our weakness as a country. I don't have a problem with spending that money on tracking this guy down, per se. But it is a shame that we've made no attempt, no attempt capture him and that we state that we didn't make an attempt i think it's a shame yeah i know the clock is ticking but the meds are gonna kick in and my pilot light shining bright hi i'm sam cedar you may know me from my shows on air america radio from filling in for keith olbermann on countdown or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, Comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. That's President Obama, of course, Sunday night. One of our producers, Sarah Koenig, was in a college town, State College, Pennsylvania, where she heard the noise of students uh, shouting and blowing horns and what sounded like firecrackers on Sunday night. And since she wasn't watching TV, 
She had no idea what this was about. She thought maybe they'd won a big game or something. She actually called the cops, who also at that point had no idea what it was about. And all week she kept thinking about the hugeness of the students' reaction. When I heard Monday morning about Osama bin Laden, my reaction was, oh, wow, at about that decibel. The difference between that and this. This is what was happening about three blocks away when I called the cops on Sunday. Thousands, maybe 5,000 or 6,000 Penn State students massed on Beaver Avenue. You've probably seen the pictures or read the accounts by now. Young people letting loose all over the country. Here there was all kinds of patriotic singing. Someone lit a small fire and kids were jumping over it. A guy dressed like Captain America was body surfing the crowd. Oh my God! And by the end of the week, there had been a bunch of stories in the papers about these September 11th kids, the so-called millennials, young, loyal Americans for whom Osama bin Laden was the boogeyman. They're Voldemort. But I still didn't quite get it taking to the streets, all the revelry. And I know I'm not 20 years old and I like to go to bed around 1130 instead of putting on my superhero outfit, but still, the difference between their reaction and that of everyone I know over 30, that difference is a gulf. So I asked some of the kids who were there that night, where did this outpouring of feeling come from? Why did they take this news so personally? I'm just going to play you the tape from the interview that finally helped me understand it. The girl speaking is Lexi Belkufine. She's a junior. She's 20 years old, editor of the school's daily newspaper. She's got a poster of Dave Matthews above her bed. And what she explained to me is that her fear after September 11th wasn't some abstraction. It was real and lasting. I distinctly remember being very afraid for a very long time. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, I definitely was. I I guess it was just a realization of how quickly everything could be ripped out from under you. That these huge catastrophic things can happen. That was, it was really frightening. Um, After September 11th, I wouldn't even look at a plane, basically. You know, it was, I live, um, I'm 10 minutes from the Pittsburgh International Airport. So I can watch, uh, we watch the planes go right into the airport. Um, And it just gave me this incredibly uneasy fear of, um, of planes of flying and you know it's silly but I was 11 and didn't understand it and um, I needed something to be afraid of so I, I chose flying <laughs> I, you know I, I think that you could probably even say that that feeling that being 11 and not understanding and being scared and confused and frightened um, you know, is why everyone was so excited Sunday night. Because we all kind of carried that fear with us. We definitely, we must have. Because if not, then I don't think Sunday night would have happened. And so I think that this moment um, wasn't necessarily an end point, but was the closest thing that we had felt It was this big indicator that um, there could be an end. Oh, right. Because if you're you, and like most of your cognizant life has been like different versions of the same situation, which is that we are at war with this sort of like shadowy network, I could totally see how it feels like it's never going to end. That's exactly how it feels. Um, It was actually, it's kind of neat for me. My uh, little sister... My mom was pregnant with her when, 
on September 11th. She was seven months pregnant, I think. And now, you know, she's she's in third grade and she's and so it was, it, I, I don't know. I really the past couple of days have been thinking about her a lot. And um, I'm almost really excited for her because she she doesn't know about any of this. You know, she doesn't understand any of this. And for me, at least, it was this this moment, like this moment that I realized that, you know, maybe Chloe won't have to have the same confusing um years as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old. Did you feel like, well, maybe she never has to know now? Exactly. And that was a really cool feeling for me. Did you even know before Sunday night that you were waiting for an endpoint? Do you know what I'm saying? Like before the feeling came, did you even know like, oh, this is the feeling I've wanted to have all this time? It's really interesting because I don't think that I had. Um, I don't know that I necessarily felt the way that I did until, you know, I'm watching 6,000 of my peers in the streets celebrating, and um, but I had no idea. When I'd asked another student why he and his friends cared so much about what happened Sunday, since they were just little kids when September 11th happened, it didn't happen to them. He shot back, no, it didn't happen to you guys. It happened to us. There are two reasons why Osama bin Laden became the sort of terrorist kingpin that he ultimately became. Uh, the first reason is money. Osama bin Laden was labeled by the United States as the world's top financier of terrorism before he was ever implicated in planning and directing terrorist attacks himself. Before his own Al-Qaeda plots, bin Laden was thought to have been the money man behind high-profile attacks like the Kobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia in 1996 or the first World Trade Center bombing back in 1993. He was international terrorism's money guy. Here's how NBC News first reported on Osama bin Laden back in 1990. Watch this. This guerrilla warrior operates like the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, funding and supporting violence against the West and its allies. Call it Terror Inc. Private jets, Swiss bank accounts. He gives orders via the Internet. As good a capitalist as he is a terrorist. He was not the terrorist per se. He's the guy in the background pulling the uh, uh, strings. And those NBC News 1997. So, so the first reason Osama bin Laden became the world's terrorist kingpin was money. The second reason he became the world's terrorist kingpin, also money. Uh, but in a different way. Osama bin Laden's father, who was a construction mogul in Saudi Arabia, he died when bin Laden was about 10 years old. He left behind a hefty but undisclosed fortune. And that gave Osama bin Laden not only a lot of his own money to do what he wanted with, but it also gave him access to the mega-rich Saudi elite. He grew up 
playing with Saudi princes and sheiks. He reportedly had his own stable of horses by the time he was 15 years old. And that became the key not only to his, his direct financial power, but to his mystique, to what made him inspirational in the extremist world, to the myth of him. Bin Laden used to brag that when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, the Saudi government wanted to send a prince. The Saudi government wanted to send somebody from the royal family, but when they couldn't get an actual Saudi royal to go to Afghanistan to be an inspirational figure supporting the Muslim fighters against the communists there, they picked the next best thing. They picked Osama bin Laden, who was essentially Saudi royalty, even if he wasn't actually from the royal family. Those were the roots of his inspirational power as a terrorist figurehead. This rich guy, this almost unimaginably rich guy, with unimaginably rich friends, could be doing anything. Could be doing anything with all of his money and all of his influence, but he went and lived among the humble Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan, fighting against the communists. He funded that insurgency. He raised funds for that insurgency among his rich friends. He maybe even fought a little bit himself, although nobody really knows. But the insurgency ultimately wins. The Soviets go home. The Soviet Union collapses shortly thereafter. And this ostentatiously pious, humble by choice, rich kid gets to be the folk hero. When we think about Osama bin Laden, we think about mayhem and war and perverted pseudo-theology. But when bin Laden talked about what he was doing and why, he was always talking about money. Even at times you really would not expect him to be so money focused, he talked a lot about money. Money was always how he explained what he was doing and what he and Al-Qaeda were trying to accomplish. One month after the September 11th attacks, in October 2001, Osama bin Laden gave an interview to Al Jazeera. In that interview, he explained the effect of the 9-11 attacks as follows. Quote, the losses on Wall Street amounted to 16%, and they said that this was a record loss that had never happened since the market opened more than 230 years ago. Such a huge collapse had never happened before. The capital in circulation in this market amounts to $4 trillion. If we multiply 16% by $4 trillion to find out the losses that their shares suffered, we find that it is $600 $140 billion. This is what they lost in one hour. The daily gross national income in the United States is $20 billion. On the first week after the attacks, they did not work at all because of the psychological shock. Even to this very day, some people do not go to work because of the enormous shock. And he goes on and on and on and on about money. The Bin Laden, Bin Laden in this interview, this is a month after 9-11, he goes into great detail about layoffs in the airline industry, layoffs in the hotel industry, name-checking specific hotel chains. Ultimately, he adds it all up and says, by his sketchy terrorist math, uh, that he thought that his great victory of the 9-11 attacks was that they cost the United States more than a trillion dollars. That's what he saw the victory as. That's how he was talking in the first month after the 9-11 attacks. After that, even, even though bin Laden loomed very large in everything that Americans were thinking about, he didn't actually release many other video recordings. So there was that one right after 9-11, a month afterwards. There was a number of audio messages that he put out over the next few years. But it really wasn't until 2004, right before the George W. Bush, John Kerry presidential election, that bin Laden rather dramatically released another long videotaped statement. And again, what did he talk about in that statement? He talked about money. Reflecting again on the 9-11 attacks, bin Laden said, quote, Al-Qaeda spent $500,000 on the event while America in the incident and its aftermath lost, according to the lowest estimates, more than $500 billion. 
At this point, it is more than three years after 9-11, and he is still tallying up and bragging about the financial cost of the attack on the United States. The financial cost is what's in the front of his mind. When Americans think about the 9-11 attacks, do we think, yeah, those sure were expensive. And that is not really the way that we tallied up the cost, but that is the way that he tallied it up. And that is the way he consistently explained Al-Qaeda's overall strategy. Something that looked to us like nihilism, like insane Neanderthal fundamentalist bloodthirsty nihilism. From his perspective, from the perspective of the founder of Al-Qaeda, it was economic, and it was economically rational. Bin Laden saying in 2004, quote, we are continuing this policy in bleeding America to the point of bankruptcy. As for the economic deficit, it has reached astronomical numbers estimated to total more than a trillion dollars. The real loser is you, the American people, and their economy. According to bin Laden, the goal of al-Qaeda was to bleed America to the point of bankruptcy. That was his grand strategy. Our good friend Ezra Klein at the Washington Post wrote about this today, saying, quote, For bin Laden, success was not to be measured in body counts. It was to be measured in deficits, in borrowing costs, in investments we weren't able to make in our country's continued economic strength. A month ago, a month before Osama bin Laden was killed, the Congressional Research Service published a report with uh, what seemed to me to be uh, the most conservative possible accounting um, for the cost of Iraq, Afghanistan, and other global war on terror operations since 9-11. Uh, by their very conservative estimate, just things like veterans' health care and the wars themselves directly uh, cost about $1.3 trillion since 9-11, uh, and $1.4 trillion if the president's budget for next year is approved. I say that's conservative. Those numbers are conservative because Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz just wrote a book about just the Iraq war that was titled The Three Trillion Dollar War. Again, just for Iraq, not even talking about Afghanistan, and not even talking about everything else we have spent so much on as a country because 9-11 happened because of what Al-Qaeda did, money that we would not have necessarily spent otherwise. Last year, the Washington Post published a remarkable investigation called Top Secret America, chronicling how much money we have poured into defense and intelligence and security over the last decade. Uh, I've gone back to the series again and again um, since they first published it. Quote, the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency has gone from 7,500 employees in 2002 to 16,500 today. The budget of the National Security Agency, which conducts electronic eavesdropping, doubled. 35 FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces, 35, became 106. On the grounds of the former St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in Anacostia, a $3.4 billion Department of Homeland Security headquarters building will rise from the crumbling brick wall wards, the largest government complex built since the Pentagon. 24 government organizations were created by the end of 2001. In 2002, 37 more were created to track weapons of mass destruction, collect threat tips, and coordinate the new focus on counterterrorism. That was followed the next year by 36 new organizations, and 26 after that, and 31 more, and 32 more, and 20 or more each in 2007, 2008, and 2009. When 9-11 happened, the U.S. national debt was this. The day that Osama bin Laden was finally killed, nearly 10 years later, this was the debt. Reflecting hugely, of course, the Great Recession caused by the financial sector self-immolating. But consider also that the already historically massive U.S. defense budget doubled since 2001. The U.S. intelligence budget? Who knows? We didn't have something called the Department of Homeland Security budget when 9-11 happened. Now we do. It got $42 billion last year. 
The investment and innovation and energy and human capital and sacrifice that America has put into security over the past 10 years is really mind-bending. It really reflects a massive national effort. And maybe there's waste and fraud and abuse and, and maybe a lot of that money has gone down a rat hole uh, or a spider hole. But even if you, even if you do not even if you do not take that tack on it, even, even, if, even if it hasn't, let's say you're being totally uncritical about the character of that spending. If you're just trying to be honest about how much of it there has been, what is the effect of that type of massive reorganization of American priorities? What is the effect of that on the strength of our country, on the economic strength of our country? In 1999, before 9-11, this was median household income in America. Uh, here's what happened uh, in the years since 9-11. Uh, median household income has dropped by 5%. As that average income has sunk over the past decade, the basic cost of living has gone off the charts. Here's what happened to health care costs, for example, over the last decade. The average annual premiums for a family in 2000, just over six grand in 2010. That figure rose to more than 13 grand. How about something like home heating oil? Basics, right? February 2000, a gallon of home heating oil was $1.35. Now that'll be $3.88 a gallon, please. As incomes in this country have stayed flat, and as the basic, basic costs of living have gone up, making the median American family materially more poor, we've also seen things like our education results decline. In 2000, the U.S. ranked 14th in science and 18th in math. By 2009, the U.S. was down to 17th in science and 25th in math. The result of all of this, lower wages, higher living costs, poorer education, the result is the middle class in this country disintegrating. Income inequality is worse now than it has been in decades. The U.S. leading the way in economic inequality in the whole developed world. Now, as a measure of America's strength, the modern impossibility of the middle class is not something to feel romantic um, or wistful or, again, even ideological about, not at a time like this. But it is worth thinking about whether or not America has a strong, resilient economy. Rich people being really rich, that alone does not give you a strong economy or a strong nation. That can just be feudalism with cable. One of the great granular legacies of the last 10 years of American priorities is that four of the five wealthiest counties in the country are now in the Washington, D.C. beltway. Think about that. The Forbes list of these counties says things like Fairfax County, Virginia is home to companies with strong connections to intelligence agencies like the CIA and the National Counterterrorism Center. Yeah, all that spending does buy you something. Buys you something here at home in addition to buying you something abroad. Osama bin Laden's stated goal for the 9-11 attacks was to cause us to spend ourselves into oblivion. His goal was to do something cheap and radical and traumatizing that would cause us to react in a way that bankrupted us. So that what they couldn't take down by force or by ideological competition, we would take down ourselves by panic. Osama bin Laden, I'm happy to say, is now dead. And now we have a choice to make about whether the next decade of spending and policy and priorities will be one that makes us stronger whether it'll be one that gets us back to competing on our own terms for our own goal. I 
hope you enjoy this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. What Osama's killing means. After the impromptu celebrations, the street parties, and the hoots of joy at the U.S. SEAL team's killing of Al-Qaeda chief Osama bin Laden, cooler heads may find these hootenannies to be premature. That's because despite political claims and U.S. press reports to the contrary, the killing has done nothing to weaken Al-Qaeda. In fact, according to one counterterrorism insider, Al-Qaeda is stronger today than it was 10 years ago, before the strikes of 9-11. Leah Farrell, a former senior counterterrorism intelligence analyst with the Australian Federal Police, reported in the latest edition of Foreign Affairs just this fact. She writes, Since fleeing Afghanistan to Pakistan's tribal areas in late 2001, Al-Qaeda has founded a regional branch in the Arabian Peninsula and acquired franchises in Iraq and the Maghreb. Today. It has more members, greater geographic reach, and a level of sophistication and influence it lacked 10 years ago. As for Osama, he hasn't had operational or command and control power for years now. Thus, his loss will have minimal impact on the organization's actions or plans. It's important to realize that we are discussing a war between one of the most powerful and resourceful states in history and a group. Seriously. Who's at a disadvantage? U.S. Special Forces could have knocked off Osama the week after September 11. Why didn't they? Because if they did, there would have been no pretext to invade Iraq. The public, its great thirst slaked by revenge, would never have supported it. So Osama, like Mubarak, like Ben Ali, and like Gaddafi, have outlived their usefulness to the empire. Remember then-General Colin Powell's quip, We're running out of boogeymen. The media and political establishment like to raise up demons to unsettle American comfort. Osama fulfilled that function for 10 years. They don't need him anymore. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. He's there, I swear. There's a monster hiding under my bed. I don't dare, cause I'm scared. Hang my hand over the edge of my bed where he hides and lies awake at night to take a bite of me when I dream, 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 dream. that we are all friends. And sing together, we are not scared And we all know how to share It's like a great man said I have a dream Let me say at the outset that like virtually every American I'm glad he's gone He got what he deserved He knew this day was coming We knew this day was coming The only question was whether he would die of some normal ailment before 
you know, American forces got to him. So good riddance. And, uh, you know, you hope in some tiny little way this gives some sort of closure and comfort to those who are, you know, the loved ones or close friends of those who died on 9-11. The part that was hard for me to understand is the chanting. I was watching CNN when the president, um, at about, it was late, uh, 10.30, Ben, was it? I don't know when it was, um... But late, we were watching uh, CNN, and, and the president came on and made the announcement. And then, of course, CNN does the analysis afterwards, and they they keep cutting away to their guy in the field who's... I, was it outside the White House, Ben? He was outside of somewhere, and he's he's got the crowd in the background, and they're chanting, USA! USA! Like it was some sort of Olympic victory. And all I could think of was that, I mean, while it's understandable that people would be jubilant, I wasn't sure that these people in the crowd who were so jubilant understood exactly what this guy had done to us. I'm not sure it's a triumph sort of period. It's sort of like a Pyrrhic victory. I think the, you know, analogy or metaphor for what he did was he came up and stabbed us in the back and gave us a potentially mortal wound where we could bleed to death very easily. We turned around and killed him and then we laughed in his face. I'm not so sure he would be upset with the results. I think this guy got exactly what he wanted every step of the way. If you take three steps back and you look at this guy and you try to view how Osama bin Laden is going to be seen a thousand years from now, he's an amazing figure. That that guy did what he did, and to watch the dominoes and the ramifications of what he did continue to tumble, the man turned history, 90 degrees at least, and we're living with the ramifications. And I don't think they're positive, and people are chanting, USA, USA. It's almost like they don't know how bad the wound is, you know, that is bleeding from our back. The guy wanted to die a martyr. He died a martyr. This is a guy who Robert Fisk interviewed several times, and this is a guy who, who was legitimately jealous of people who blew themselves up as part of you know, the holy wars that he sent them out to fight. That's how he wanted to die. And what's more, that's the way it's going to be most um, appreciated by the sort of people who saw him in a more positive light. That's a heroic death. So we're chanting USA, and we just gave that guy the best propaganda victory he was likely to get in his life again. Nonetheless, I'm glad he's gone. So how do you get a chance to turn around what happened and then eventually really triumph? Well, I think you have to undercut the things that that guy tried and succeeded in doing and wonder if it's even, you know, one of the reasons we're pessimistic in a lot of the shows we do lately is because I'm not sure it's possible to undo the damage that this guy did. But if you want to celebrate and really claim victory, that's the front this war's fought on. First of all, let's talk a little bit about what he did, because I'm not sure we've put this into real perspective. No one will argue with the idea that the 9-11 attacks was a, was a turning point moment in American history. It was meant to be. Osama bin Laden's comments are recorded before these attacks, for 10, 15 years before these attacks, and he talks about things that make much more sense now that you look back on them after the attacks. One thing he said was, 
that the attacks would have an effect all out of proportion to the damage done because they were directed at a country that hadn't seen war on its soil, you know, in a hundred years. He had talked about how if you blow up a building and a lot of people are killed in a country that's used to having bombs explode, it's not that big of a deal. You do it in a tranquil, peaceful place that hasn't known war, and the place is likely to freak out. The place freaked out. This man is responsible for us being in Iraq. Now, we didn't have to go into Iraq, but he certainly provided one of the excuses for that. 9-11 doesn't happen. We're probably not in Iraq. Well, probably never had the boots on the ground. I should clarify that because we were already, you know, doing no-fly zones and all that stuff. But this guy doesn't attack us on 9-11. We're certainly not in Afghanistan. What have those wars done to us? We're taking off our shoes at airports. We're living with amazing amounts of security when judged by pre-9-11 standards. Who's responsible for that? That's that knife wound in the back, folks, continually bleeding long after we've, you know, cut Osama's head off. You want to pick it up and laugh at it? It might laugh back. This is a quote from the great Chinese military theorist Sun Tzu. Everybody's heard of him. This quote refers to what happens when you put your military forces out there for extended wars. And extended means, you know, anything more than a couple of years. He writes, quote, when employing them in battle, a victory that is long in coming will blunt their weapons and dampen their ardor. If you attack cities, their strength will be exhausted. If you expose the army to a prolonged campaign, the state's resources will be inadequate. When the weapons have grown dull and the spirits depressed, when our strength has been expended and the resources consumed, then the feudal lords will take advantage of our exhaustion to arise. Even though you have wise generals, they will not be able to achieve a good result. Thus, in military campaigns, I have heard of awkward speed, but have never seen any skill in lengthy campaigns. No country has ever profited from protracted warfare. Those who do not thoroughly comprehend the dangers inherent in employing the army are incapable of truly knowing the potential advantages of military actions, end quote. Everybody who studies military affairs for five seconds understands that long wars are not good. Osama bin Laden wanted to embroil us in a long war. We obliged him. This is a quote from a Robert Fisk story about his interview with Osama bin Laden, and he had to track up 5,000 feet into, you know, remote mountains to find the guy living in tents, you know, in hiding, even then, before 9-11. And Fisk writes about his parting with bin Laden that night. Quote, I shall always remember Osama bin Laden's last words to me that night on the Bear Mountain. Mr. Robert, he said, from this mountain upon which you are sitting, we broke the Russian army and we destroyed the Soviet Union. And I pray to God that he will permit us to turn the United States into a shadow of itself. End quote. A shadow of itself kind of depends upon your criteria, doesn't it? I'm sure many people would argue that in some ways we are greater and more powerful than ever before. But my criteria is different than that. And it's the one issue that has been pushed so far to the sidelines. When you bring it up, you sound like a kook. What about freedom? 
Not for some faraway people that we're going to send our military over to liberate. What about us? You remember freedom, right? That part in the founding of the country that was so important to us? Freedom. Where is that issue's importance in the 21st century? Because let's look at it correctly. When history compresses down the road and they look back on this period, the 21st century is going to be kicked off by 9-11. It's going to set the tone for everything that came after it. It was a 90-degree turn, and you see it no more clearly than in the area of freedom. All of a sudden, you know, what, what George W. Bush is alleged to have said about the Constitution, that it's just a piece of paper, became the de facto approach that presidents, even before 9-11, you know, took to heart. Bill Clinton did a lot of bad stuff in terms of freedom that a lot of people don't recognize because George W. Bush continued and expanded that, and some could make the case that, you know, Barack Obama's continued and expanded that. You don't have Osama bin Laden, you don't have Guantanamo. You don't have Osama bin Laden. You don't have us waterboarding people. You don't have Osama bin Laden. A lot of American and British and soldiers from other countries as well are not dead or wounded. Not to mention a lot of people in the Middle East who just got caught up in the crossfire. And oh, yeah, how about the money? Think about the treasure that we've expended since 9-11 due to Osama bin Laden. What did this guy do to us? The better question is, what did we let him do to us? I'm back in Liverpool and everything seems the same But I worked something out last night that changed this little boy's brain A small piece of advice that took 22 years in the make And I will break it for you now Please learn from my mistakes Please learn from my mistakes Let's dance the joy division and celebrate the irony Everything is going wrong but we're so happy Let's dance the joy division Raise our glass to the ceiling Cause this could all go so wrong But we're just so Now, often, John, when a high-profile person dies, the media suddenly comes out with stories suggesting they liked him a lot more than they did when he was alive. But this didn't really happen on this occasion. This uh, wasn't quite the Queen Mother all over again. Um, and I think it's time now to look back at the life of Osama bin Laden, uh, born in 1957. Coincidentally, the same month as the Canadian actress Shannon Tweed. Now, if in their early years you'd been asked to predict which one of these two would become <laughs> Playboy Centerfold and star of countless, countless erotic thrillers, and which would become a global terrorist, fomenter of hatred and bringer of destruction, you'd probably have replied, ah, too early to say, but on balance, I'll say the girl will probably be the centerfold. So maybe Bin Laden's destiny was always destined to be his destiny. But thus it was that Osama and Shannon Tweed took very different paths, which crossed only very briefly when Bin Laden appeared as gas station attendant in Body Chemistry 4 Full Exposure. If you watch, <laughs> if you watch the scene where Tweed oh fills up... Oh, my God! <laughs> If you watch the scene where Tweed fills up her car at a gas station in the Arizona desert, you can see in the background a bearded figure shaking his fist, mouthing something about where Bill Clinton can stick himself, and holding up a placard saying, Death Valley to the West, with the word Valley crossed out. <laughs> Tweed herself has no documented links to international terrorist cells, although she is married to rock legend Gene Simmons, frontman of Kiss, 
whose possible links to the FARC rebels in Colombia have never been investigated, and who has also never denied being involved in the Narodnaya Volya terrorist group who assassinated Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Tweed is rumoured to have it, had it written into her contract, then that's in her trademark erotic thrillers. She would not have to do any topless scenes with convicted or suspected global terrorists, or play the part of a suicide bombstress unless artistically valid. Bin Laden's Abbottabad video and games room ironically contains no DVD starring Shannon Tweed, or at least the White House has not intimated that there were any there. But they did find a copy, pirated copy of Kiss's 1983 platinum-selling album Lick It Up. Read into that <laughs> what you will. But Tweed herself has never been seen in the T-shirt denouncing the radicalisation of young Muslims. So, I, I don't know what we can read into all this, John. <laughs> but anyway, Bin Laden does seem now to be set to be remembered as the third millennium's first major baddie. He had um, around 26 children from six different wives which suggests that he clearly loved the chicks, um, more so than some of his public pronouncements I'd have suggested. But his daddy married 22 times and had uh, somewhere between 50 and 60 children, which, to me, sounds like an extremely dangerous combination of indecisive and randy. <laughs> According to an ex-squeeze of Bin Laden's, he had a major thing for Whitney Houston. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Is that true? Please well, tell me that's some bullshit you made up. It's true that an ex-girlfriend of his claimed this, but there are suggestions <laughs> that she is bonkers. <laughs> but, apparently, Bin Laden was even willing to break his, quotes colour rule to make Whitney Houston one of his wives. But he went about trying to impress Whitney Houston in a pretty f***ing weird-ass way, John. Now, I am no expert at seducing women, but threatening to destroy Western civilization has never really worked for me, even when backed up by a very expensive dinner and some mind-bending origami. And yet, it all could have been so different for Bin Laden. He was born into a mega-rich construction family, multi-billion dollar uh, building empire, but he chose destruction over construction, and one of his bro brothers heads the Saudi Bin Laden Group, a global oil and equity conglomerate, and one of the world's largest construction firms, grossing over $5 billion a year. And on its website, in the backgrounds of the company, it says, In 1967, Mohammed Bin Laden died. That's Osama's father. But his life's work was carried on by his eldest son, Salem Bin Laden, and, quotes, a selected group of his brothers. <laughs> now... <laughs> I think the words selected is very important there. They have made it clear that's not all his brothers involved. <laughs> Definitely some brothers did not make the cut. And it seems that Osama was one of those brothers. So, I guess in conclusion, what we've discovered from this is that I set out to write an obituary. I got distracted by the Shannon Tweed thing and didn't finish it. <laughs> find myself wondering all the time whether or not we had any options to react differently because from a military tactics perspective the best trap in the world is one that is irresistible that it would defy logic to imagine someone not falling into whose bait is so good it will attract anyone all the time even if they see the trap there's a very good chance that we didn't have any options at all 
that where we are today involved playing on such basic human emotions that we had no choice but to do exactly what we did. You knock down two big buildings in Manhattan and kill thousands of people. It defies logic to think that we're not going to strike somewhere because of that. Maybe getting bogged down in a place like Afghanistan was relatively unavoidable. There's a a piece, you know, I went back into, my library is this nutty library. If I ever showed you guys my library, you'd think I was some, some well, more of a kook than you think I am already sometimes. Um, but I have all these war books, you know, firepower and limited warfare, all this kind of strange stuff. But my head, ever since the word came down about Osama bin Laden last night, has been, little quotes have been popping up. That quote from Sun Tzu was one of them. The quote from Robert Fisk's book was another one. Um, there is a another quote. I'm not going to read it because it, it's a uh, it's it's what's the word I'm looking for? It's um, it's not nicely written. It's a choppy and the whole thing. But there's a quote from a book that's wonderful. You should read it if you want to get an idea for um how people who look back on even medieval times as relatively recently might see things. It's called the Crusades through Arab Eyes, and it's a book that documents events a lot of us all learned about. You know the Crusades, but from the other side. And there's a passage in there talking about the great Muslim leader Saladin laying a trap for the Christian crusader forces. And he lays it knowing that the extreme voices will win out. And then they, they talk about the debate between the intelligent, um, you know, Reynaud, who looks and says, look, this is a trap. Don't do it. Don't fall into it. It's obvious. And then the one who wants to go fight the rash, one who wants to strike. And he says, you're just saying that because you're friendly and you like Muslims and everything else. We know where you lie. And then Reynaud says, well, but there's a lot of them. Can't you see how many of them there are? And he goes, well, we're not afraid. He goes, the fire does not worry about how much wood there is to consume. And then the Arab chronicler says, and so once again, the most extreme arguments win out in the camp of the Franks. The tactics being used by a guy like Osama bin Laden are age old. But as chroniclers who had to fight it a thousand and fifteen hundred years ago said, the worst thing to do was to fall into the trap. If they shoot the arrows at you, don't charge into them. They're trying to get you to charge into them, and we charged into them. And now we're there. And we're bleeding out of our back from this guy who's no longer even here to worry about. What do we do now? Osama bin Laden's dead. Is there a chance to take this as an opportunity to change course? Osama bin Laden was the excuse that allowed us to do a heck of a lot of things that made the 21st century look radically different from the late 20th century. Does his death provide us with a similar opportunity, enabling us to step back from the brink a little bit? To make the excuse that, hey, you know, we did what we came to do. Uh, we're going to back off a little now. Mission accomplished. Um, let's get back to some sort of normalcy, shall we? As we've often said, folks, on this show, how do you end the war on terror? Who do you accept a surrender from? Who do you unconditionally defeat? Do you kill the last terrorist and then go home and claim victory? Be another terrorist two days after you leave. They crop up again, you know. How do you end a war on terror? There are very few logical stopping points. The death of the guy responsible for 9-11 is the best one I can see. How about you? Now, here's the question, though. What would stopping a war on terror even mean? I think this is a very important point. There's no way we can go back to a pre-9-11 world, and I think everybody realizes it. 
But how far can we push back what you might call wartime measures to a new peacetime norm? I mean, we have the people at the security at airports groping people. Can we, you know, push back from that maybe? I mean, is there any way we can once again pay attention to the value of freedom at all? This country was founded on that idea. We roll ourselves in that myth constantly around here, but we pay lip service to it. The idea of freedom, the idea of the Constitution, the idea of the Bill of Rights, all this stuff are acknowledged by almost everybody as victims of, you know, the war on terror. And let's be honest, Osama bin Laden. Now that he's dead, can we recover any of that lost ground at all, or are we all going to say that it's gone forever? And if it's gone forever, then it's time we step back from the facade and acknowledge that, you know, that freedom is no longer one of our top concerns because it conflicts with some of our other top concerns like security. I would love to get the American people's opinion of it. I don't think I'd let them vote on it, though, because I'm afraid of what they might answer. Would you like more freedom or more security? As if we really could provide more security. That's the old line about, you know, those who choose security over freedom deserve neither. Well, the truth is you don't get either either. When you make us take off our shoes at airports, the guy who was going to go on the plane with the shoe bomb chooses a different method. There's always going to be large groups of people to hit, go to a mall. You know, terrorism's like water, finds the path of least resistance. And you're playing into the tactics the other side wants you to play into when you simply beef up security and spend a ton of money here, there, and elsewhere. You become Sun Tzu's victim, you know, where your resources run out. You'll be heading off into President Dwight Eisenhower land, where he compared the rush to try to achieve perfect security to ending up in a jail. And he said, in jail, you'll have everything you need, perfect security, and three meals a day. The only thing you won't have is freedom. I would argue that you don't even have perfect security in jail, and yet we seem to be constructing bars and walls as quickly as we can around here. Is all this necessary? Is this an unavoidable future? Could we have this conversation? Again, nothing is more hard on the intelligent people of the United States, I would argue. Speaking for all of them, right, Ben? But the the hardest part is that we don't even talk about it. We pretend it's not there. We'll chant, USA, USA, while looking like fools because we don't seem to understand that, you know, things are being taken out from under us, maybe by us, and we don't notice their loss at all. Precious things. Could we at least have a conversation so that when those people are going to chant those slogans out in front of the White House, at least I will know that they are informed about what they're cheering for and they know what the costs are. Hard to chant USA, 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 when the very things that make that so wonderful are, you know, at stake. And I'd at least like to be talking about the fact that they are rather than pretending like it's not going on at all. Osama bin Laden hurt us as bad as just about anybody you can think of in history, folks. And he hurt us in a place that most of those other people who've hurt us in history weren't able to touch. You know, the values that the country's founded upon. Values that look more and more kooky if you try to bring them up. How important is freedom in the war on terror? Sounds a little kooky when you bring it up that way, doesn't it? 
shows you how far we've gone since those buildings fell down. How far do you think we're going to go the next time it happens? years ago, before 9-11, the U.S. defense budget was half the size that it is now. Ten years ago, before 9-11, there was no Department of Homeland Security. Had someone suggested that there ought to be one, you probably would have teased them for using a weird word like homeland. Ten years ago, before 9-11, you walked through a metal detector to get on an airplane, sure, but this was the kind of thing you'd only do maybe on a third date. Sometimes on your flight, even the pilots would keep the cockpit door open and you could see them work and you could see the world fly by through their windshield if you peered down the aisle. Before 9-11, the U.S. had troops based in Saudi Arabia. Before 9-11, the U.S. legal history of torture was of our government prosecuting people for that. Wartime was no excuse. Before 9-11, the National Security Agency, having access to everybody's emails and phone calls and texts and bank records and everything, would have been a scandal. Before 9-11, we did not have a new militarized intelligence bureaucracy that the Washington Post described as an additional 1,271 government organizations, 1,931 private companies, and an estimated 854,000 people holding top secret security clearances. Before 9-11, no one in politics and public life talked about Article Three courts, courts as called for under the Constitution, because those were just what courts were. We didn't have anything but Article Three courts. Why would we? Before 9-11, we didn't drop bombs using flying robots. Before 9-11, we had not lost 3,000 people in Lower Manhattan and at the Pentagon and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Before 9-11, we did not have 2.2 million Americans who are Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And we did not have the attendant national promise to do right by them as a country in respecting their service. Before 9-11, we had not lost more than 6,000 of those veterans in our post-9-11 wars, before U.S. forces finally found and killed Osama bin Laden. If you were a kid when 9-11 happened, it may be hard to imagine our country without all of these things in place. If you were an adult when 9-11 happened, you probably could never have believed that this is how we would have chosen to spend the decade after. Thanks for listening, everyone. So this is obviously a really long episode, and I'll keep this short and uh, save voicemails for later shows. Uh, really what I want to say today is to follow up on my commentary from the most recent episode. And the essence of what I said was that I was pretty nonplussed about the whole uh, bin Laden being killed news and 
the undertone to that was that I had a mild sense of unease that I was not very excited about it because what you kind of, the sense you got was that you should be excited. Uh, that's what I kind of heard from other people and, you know, saw clips of and whatever. Uh, so I thought, huh, like, I'm not excited. Am I, am I the odd man out here? And, uh, and so I, I, I didn't know how to feel about that. And the background to that uh, commentary is that I actually recorded it a few days before that episode went out. If you recall, I briefly mentioned I had like a trip to New York to go to uh, for my brother's wedding. So I, I pre-produced uh, my commentary and uh, produced it so far in advance. I hadn't heard anybody else's commentary on the subject yet. So those, you know, those thoughts really were only my own, not not influenced by any other commentators. And uh, and so I, you know, I didn't know. You know, I felt pretty okay about it, but I was like, oh, I, I wonder if anyone else feels this way. And then uh, I started listening to what other people had to say, and my feelings went from unease to pride, basically, because every other person who uh, whose politics line up closely with mine and who I respect greatly uh, basically said exactly the same things I said, some more eloquently and uh, or most more eloquently, I'm sure. Uh, I, I felt like the company I was keeping was a really good group of people. There were a couple of exceptions, of course. Um, you know, no one needs to be like called out by name. Uh, people I, you know, still like and everything. But uh, let's just say that it wasn't a surprise. You know, I, there are definitely people who I like who I don't agree with all the time, and uh, and it was a few of those people who were the sort to be, uh, you know, more on the uh, jubilant side of this issue. Of course, there will be you know more discussion of this topic, um, you know more episodes, getting deeper into the details uh, of this whole event. Uh, if you would like to share your thoughts, many people already have uh, on the voicemail line. Uh, you can add add yours to that list. The number to dial to leave comments, questions, or activist calls to action is two zero six two zero two three four one zero. Now I just want to thank a couple of members uh, before I go. Michael R. signed up for a leftist membership back on June 20th last year. Signed up for a full year in advance, so huge thanks to Michael. And Eric S. signed up on June 14th and uh, signed up as, as a leftist and uh, has been continuing his monthly membership ever since then. He's been sticking with the show. So huge thanks to Michael and Eric and all the members and donors who keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Spread the word about our YouTube clips. You can also stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh, I'll take you out